0: Welcome to today's episode of The Rebound, the five things we're watching right now. I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Eshkenazi. Thanks Abe. So it's easy to imagine that the world came to a halt at the end of March. For the past two months, we've all been at home trying to keep up with work, chase our kids, bake bread, and watch too much Netflix. But like Rust, supply chains never sleep. It hasn't always been pretty, There have been successes and failures these last two months. Most important, there have been and will be lessons learned as the economy and supply chains rebound. Now, we don't know yet what will be different, but we do know that how we manage our supply chains, move our businesses forward, and serve our customers will change. That's going to be the focus of the Rebound podcasts. Today, Abe and I are going to look at the five things we're watching right now. And hey, if we have time, there might be more. So Abe, let's start with the number one thing you're watching, the just-in-case supply chain. Tell me a little bit about what you're thinking.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting concept that uh, for years, as you indicated, uh, the supply chain was focused on a lean, efficient, and a very effective supply chain and a focus on just-in-time, uh, whether it be in the home environment, on next-day delivery or even same-day delivery from Amazon and a lot of organizations. And as we moved into much more uh, online buying, expectations have escalated for consumers and businesses alike. We've seen inventories reduced. We've seen very effective and efficient supply chains respond to a whole host of you know opportunities as well as disruptions that we've had in the past. What we've exposed, though, with this latest pandemic is a significant weakness in the supply chain, and that is as we've built a very effective supply chain in responding to the consumer or the commercial or industrial setting, what we've lacked is the capacity to respond to surges or shifts in utilization that were exposed as part of this pandemic. We saw a significant surge um procurement or buying from individuals uh, as well as from companies on PPE that created quite a bit of shortages for quite a time, and we're still dealing with those issues today. Additionally, we saw a shift in demand away from an industrial, commercial, or a school or academic-based setting into a home-based setting. And we saw the challenges with producers as well as with um, the growers in terms of shifting their production to meet this new demand. Uh, again, it wasn't an increase or decrease in demand. It was a shift in terms of where that product was being utilized. So we learned a lot from other disruptions, whether they be environmental or whether they be cybersecurity or terrorism. We've learned how to respond to these short-term disruptions in our supply chains, either by shifting production and or um, additional capacity from um, either organizations or uh, other suppliers, what we've realized in this particular case is that we are not capable of responding to the just-in-case based on the way that we've seen or the way that we've developed supply chains for organizations. So the shift in demand and the shift in the the capacity of organizations to respond has created a significant gap for us. The challenge that we have is who's responsible to fill that gap? And is it solely on the back of private enterprises or do we need a discussion on a public-private partnership about how to respond to these types of surges or um, lack of response uh, for PPE in the future? It's difficult to put it on the private enterprises solely when we're talking about national stockpiles or national reserves of what we now consider to be critical medicine or critical supplies for our economy and for our healthcare system. So a you know a very efficient supply chain, and we through this pandemic we exposed a significant gap that we have, and not only in terms of responsiveness, but visibility and agility that we are not uh, truly prepared for at this stage.
0: You know um, that's an interesting uh, point. One of the things I've been thinking about is we talk a lot about. Uh, reshoring, bringing things back, right? And mm-hmm. and frankly, I think, um, you know, nobody wants to pay $60,000 for a Honda Civic. So I think there's some things that you're just going to continue to offshore. But what I've started wondering in this just-in-case supply chain, if we start thinking about um, strategic products, the way we think about the strategic oil reserve, you know, mm-hmm. will we bring back on a strategic basis, things like the compounds that go into pharmaceuticals, you know, that currently are uh, made somewhere somewhere else outside of the U.S. And so that, that just in case, I'm wondering if that becomes, again, sort of like the strategic oil reserves. Do we look at things that we just got to have and figure out a way to do at least some of it domestically or stockpile it?
1: I think that's a uh, part of the discussion today, Bob, is how do we prepare for disruptions in the future? We know there are going to be disruptions. We don't know, and more, more than likely, it will not be like it is today. It's going to be a different type of disruption, but where does redundancy and excess capacity uh, responsibility for that lie? And I think this is part of the challenge that we have in terms of putting together a public-private partnership, whether it's reshoring on the active pharmaceutical ingredients, as you're describing, or on personal protection equipment, our capacity to not only keep them in the stockpile, but to ramp up production in a very short time frame these are policy decisions as well as you know the you know operational decisions as well the government as well as private enterprises have a role here and how do we align the responsibility of government to you know be the backstop for the economic as well as the healthcare system and then where do we you know uh, put the responsibility for private enterprises to come up with their capacity as well. Every supply chain professional and organization is having this discussion today about what the new normal or what new demand looks like and with you know the lack of visibility or the lack of agility right now. And you combine that with a shift in utilization and surge uh, buying. It's a very difficult um, data set for supply chain professionals and companies to try to normalize how to respond. To the disruption that we've seen today. And then moving on to the policy side, as we start to reshore or consider those products as critical to our national defense or national security, we're going to see difference in trade policy. So are we going back to the tariff wars where we now see, you know, additional policy changes affect the supply chains? So this is not a single, you know, decision that, okay, we're going to need, you know, onshore this because it's critical to our national defense or national security without a residual, you know, um, impact to other supply chains.
0: You know, when you were talking about the uh, pandemic exposing, you know, sort of the weaknesses in our supply chain, it was reminded of a uh, Warren Buffett line that um, in the good times, you know, the proverbial uh, high tide raises all boats. And he says that in the bad times and the tide goes back out, you see who's been swimming naked. (laughs) And um, and I I think we've been seeing a lot about who's been swimming naked. And that's not always pretty. So, all right. Number two, this is one that's kind of near and dear to my heart, which is how do we uh, protect our supply bases? Uh, I think you and I talked uh, after the 2008 crisis, you know, a lot of companies did things to get through that. Uh, They cut their inventories so they didn't have things on the shelf. Uh, They cut orders, so they weren't getting in raw materials and parts and supplies. They extended uh, payment terms. All of those things had a significant impact on their supply base that I think people weren't thinking about uh, when they were making those moves. They were strictly thinking about survival. Uh, The challenge became when uh, demand came back, and in some instances in some industries, uh, demand snapped back quicker than people anticipated. They didn't have finished goods on the shelf. They didn't have parts, uh, raw materials or components, and they didn't have suppliers. And so they ended up kind of scrambling. Uh, and those people who had taken care of their suppliers were able to get a competitive advantage. So I'm wondering, um, as we look at coming out of this, if uh, big manufacturers or uh, you know retailers to the extent that they can, have learned those lessons or are they repeating the same mistakes? You know, have they identified the suppliers that are critical to their companies and have they even looked down to the tier two, three or uh, tier three suppliers, sorry, who are critical to their supply base uh, and asking what they can do to protect them. I don't know the answer to that, but I know from things I've been reading that it's certainly what, uh, you know, the writers at Supply Chain Management Review are uh, urging their readers to do. I don't know if you're hearing it, uh, ASCM.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the companies that are, you know, evaluating their supplier relationships. I think uh, the more forward thinking organizations are viewing them as partners, as opposed to vendors. And I think if you evaluate your supply chain, whether it's tier one, all the way through your, you know, to the raw materials, to the, you know, the product side on the development if you have visibility across your supply chain, then you can identify how you need to collaborate and coordinate your activities with your suppliers. I think we're going to see much more collaboration and coordination on the supply base because I think organizations are recognizing that their vendors are part of their integral supply chain, that they really are not a separate organization, that they need to nurture and they need to you know, treat them the way they treat their own employees in their supply chains. The criticality of the suppliers and I think this is one of the things that we're starting to see in the the pandemic is the impact on small and medium-sized businesses is much more severe than it is on larger organizations that are more well-funded and able to withstand the kind of disruption or a gap in service today. A lot of small and medium-sized organizations are not able to withstand the, the, the shift or the delay in orders or production. So the relationship that organizations, large multinationals have to have with small and medium-sized enterprises has to be reviewed with an eye towards coordinating and collaborating as partners as opposed to vendors. And taking a look at what you need to do to protect your supply base and going back to the first discussion that we had, what happens in case of? What are your plans when there is a disruption, whether it be a regional disruption or a global disruption as we're experiencing right now? I think most organizations were prepared for regional or isolated disruptions. Most organizations, if not all organizations, were not uh, prepared for a pervasive pandemic disruption to all economies as well as all supply chains. And so I think there's going to be quite a bit of effort on the relationships and on the, the vendors as partners in the future. Number three,
0: uh, what's the future of technology and automation? I know when, when I go to the uh, ASCM uh, conferences your technology and automation tracks are always um, some of the most popular. You know, they're the standing room only uh, tracks. And I've been wondering as I watch through this if people are going to postpone their investment plans or if they're just going to keep moving forward. I, I talked to a lot of automation suppliers, and one of the things they've been telling me is that yeah, they've had some you know, postponements, but more frequently they've been getting calls with people saying, I know I've got to invest. I know I've got to upgrade my uh, capabilities. I think a lot of that's from, you know, distributors because of the shift to e-com and whatever. The flip side of that is I read a story in the Wall Street Journal this weekend about how AI um, is kind of going by the wayside in terms of uh, corporate investment. What are you hearing at ASCM? What, what, what's your take on the future of technology and automation?
1: I think what we're seeing is an acceleration of an investment in digital transformation. Uh, the, we started to see this uh, over the past two to three years, where organizations were viewing their digital supply network uh, as a matrix as opposed to the linear um, you know, sort of model that we've been accustomed to. Uh, in supply chain, the focus on digital transformation, digital twins and AI blockchain I think was starting to become a um, a need for a lot of the comp- you know the competency for individuals. organizations were not necessarily diving into the investments but they were starting to recognize how they can be incorporated into their operations. We saw quite a bit of um, demand from organizations about uh, expecting their employees to be aware of, you know, AI and blockchain. Not necessarily implement at this point, but just to understand what are the implications for the future. But more and more we're seeing significant invest in digital transformation as a way to respond and to be in a, a way to be much more agile to respond into the future. I think we're only going to see more of it, but that has to be matched with an investment in talent and uh, I will say that one of the big differences that we've seen in this disruption versus 2008 and 2009 during, Recession was that almost every organization pulled back on their professional development and on their commitment to employee training during the recession. We're not seeing that this time. We're seeing a commitment to ongoing development and professional uh, training for their employees, which I think is critical because As the investment in technology increases or maintains, you need to have the talented individuals to be able to not only evaluate all the data that's coming up, but more importantly, being able to have the appropriate competency and capability to make the right decisions for the organization. So from our feedback that we're getting from companies is that digital transformation is a uh, strategic priority, maybe you the know, top two or three within their organization. And it has to be matched though with an investment in talent. So that brings us to number four,
0: which was talent. So that was a great segue. You know, when you talk about that investment in talent, um, Bridget McCray, uh who does my uh, executive ed and certification, uh, writing, uh, literally just turned in a, a story, uh, talked to you, uh, also talked to a lot of the universities. And what some of the universities said is the, the the one thing they're hearing about executive ed is kind of, well, we'll see you in September mm-hmm. uh, with travel bans, companies aren't going anywhere, but they also feel like it's really accelerated the trend towards Um, online learning. A lot of universities did, you know, webinar series during this period uh, and got a lot of traction with that. Do you think this is going to accelerate uh, that trend towards um, digital, you know, executive education or digital uh, certification?
1: Absolutely. I think organizations are looking for talent and they're going to see it in academic institutions. They're going to see it from credentialing organizations um, such as Apex. But the focus on you know, competency and skills has changed dramatically over the past 5 to 10 years. It used to be that uh, subject matter expertise or functional capabilities were uh, sufficient for supply chain professionals. Uh, as long as you were you know, functionally competent, you, you knew how to do your job and you, know, you were compensated and recognized for it. Uh, that's the price of entry today. Uh, the expectations now for supply chain professionals have elevated, along with risk uh, resiliency, sustainability, a whole host of different competencies that supply chain professionals are, um, you know, expected to have. First, you know, uh, among that is, to your point, a shift in uh, development uh, where we've seen a lot of organizations hiring out of four-year schools we're also seeing a lot of organizations take a look in different career paths for individuals in supply chain we're seeing a expectation on critical thinking and uh, being able to take a look at the big picture macro focus of the organization, and problem solving. These are expectations along with uh, a couple of points that we brought up before, uh, collaboration and coordination. These are advanced management skills that individuals need to have. And oftentimes that's through real world experience. Rarely do you get these types of experiences at an academic institution. So part of the challenge that we have is do organizations provide mentorship or training or job rotation or shadowing for individuals so they can get that exposure to the different roles or responsibilities that they expect the individuals to drive. But more importantly, there are different ways for individuals to get into and recognize within supply chain. Uh, historically, finance and engineering were two uh, well-developed paths for individuals entering supply chain. As supply chain has become much more recognized in academic institutions, there are a whole host of academic institutions providing baccalaureate or master's level programs. If you match that with the certification that either Apex or some other organizations have, you're seeing that individuals are compensated extremely well for the talent that they bring on. It's also important to know, Bob, we had a shortage of supply chain professionals before the pandemic. Uh, Indications, I think Bridget's uh, story indicated that for every six jobs, there was one candidate, uh, eligible candidate. This pandemic has only exasperated the situation. We need more individuals. We need greater competency and commitment to individuals in supply chain. And we have a whole host of opportunities with diversity and inclusion, with job rotations, with job sharing, with internships and job rotation. There are ways to embrace opportunities for individuals, either in entry level or advanced career opportunities within supply chain. You just need to get the right education. You need to get the right credentials and uh, employers want to hire you. My two biggest questions, and I'm going to go through this
0: quick so we can get to number five. But what I wonder is, will the pandemic, you know, particularly with what's happened at the university level, is that going to slow down the entry of uh, new graduates? And uh, the second is at the line level, are they going to come back? Uh, you know, there's a lot of concern about the uh, the healthy workplace uh, or a safe workplace, particularly around, you know, docks, truck drivers, warehouses, factories, that sort of thing. All right. Number five, our last one. And Abe, I'm going to turn this one over to you uh, because I know it's near and dear to your heart. What does the circular economy look like going forward?
1: Uh, Really interesting question, because as we're working our way through the recovery, I think the A lot of discussion about what are the decisions that organizations need to make today to respond to this disruption. And one of the concerns that we have is that the focus will be on short term uh, recovery decisions as opposed to long term sustainable improvements for the organization. And this includes a focus not just on the economic, uh, you know, the economic expectations for organizations. Obviously, every organization needs to be financially stable in order for them to not only keep their employees, but to make the necessary investments in their assets. But secondly, a focus on the impact that supply chain has on the environment as well as on people. And so we're looking for organizations to step up their accountability and responsibility. As we've seen with the Business Roundtable last year, indicating that their social responsibility is among the key aspects of organizational outcomes, I think we're looking for organizations to embrace sustainability beyond the risk and resiliency of operations. And we're seeing it in the raw materials. We're seeing it in ethical practices. We're seeing it in a consideration for the way that we use recycle and the waste that we have within our supply chains. This is a great opportunity to make the necessary investments to a circular economy where uh, the accountability for responsible supply chains is uh, you know, as high as the accountability for financial returns. We have an opportunity today. I'm hopeful that as organizations make the necessary decisions to respond to this pandemic, they do so with an eye towards a future that is sustainable and accountable and responsible for organizations. We're seeing consumers be much more aware of what supply chain means today. Two to three months ago, very few individuals had an understanding of what supply chain uh, means to them or how it impacts their lives. I think we've seen full uh, force the impact of uh, the benefits of supply chain as well as the, the fragility of the supply chain. Individuals and consumers and patients alike have an expectations about their supply chain, what's in their products, how it was manufactured, and how it impacts the environment. We're going to see um, from our uh, literature much more focus on uh, conscious consumerism and the ability for organizations to clearly state where they stand on their sustainability activities, including environmental as well as ethical practices.
0: Great. Well, and, you know, and right now during the pandemic, just to kind of wrap this up, I, I think one of the challenging things has been to be sustainable, given um, I don't know what you're experiencing in Chicago here in New Hampshire. Uh, they no longer take corrugated as uh, recyclable because there's like no place to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, there there are, have become so many things that from the, the way we typically thought of sustainability, you know, from the um, recycling side of it, um, some of those things have gone by the wayside. And I'm hoping that as we all get back on our feet, as we start to rebound, uh, we start to see more of that. That's all the time we have today. So thanks for joining me and Abe. We hope you'll be back for our next episode. We're going to look at what Agco, one of the world's uh, largest manufacturers of agricultural equipment, got right during COVID-19. I'm Bob Troublecock. I'm Abe Eskenazi. Thanks so much. Thanks, Bob.